tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So asked poet Mary Oliver. As children, we wanted to be astronauts, movie stars, wizards or unicorns. But as grown-ups, we generally settle for a reasonably comfortable existence with something good to watch on TV and a beer at the end of a hard week. As that other great literary mind Zadie Smith said, what modest dreamers we have become. So what does it take to live a life of fulfilment, of impact, to leave a dent on our small part of the universe? What does it take to explore what's possible and then to realise it, and much more, as we step towards our potential and live the life of our dreams? This is Conversations on Living, a podcast about being well, doing well and living well. I'm Chris Brock and I'm on a mission to find out how we can go from surviving to thriving. Joining me this week is Nikki Eberhardt, and she believes that if we align with our purpose, that thing which keeps us awake at night and gets us up in the morning, and if we set our sights on servant leadership, we can empower ourselves and others to take on the biggest challenges and find audacious solutions. Nikki is a professor of business at Minerva University. She's the manager of Delta Airlines Global Talent Team. She works with Global Citizen, with NASA, the Sundance Film Festival, the Nelson Mandela Foundation. She's given a TEDx talk and has achieved so much more than that in an effort to move towards a better world for everyone. And she believes that we all have the power to find our purpose, engage with empathy, and develop a systems thinking approach to achieving amazing themes. This is a really great conversation, and I'm so glad you've tuned in today to listen to this. But before we go into it, I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, my friends at Headliner. Headliner is the app which supports uh, this podcast, and I use it to make uh, audiograms. So they are those social media sized uh, audio clips that have a, a waveform and some graphics and maybe some captions along with them too. And you've probably seen the things. If you're interested in podcasts at all, and you follow any on social media, on Twitter or Instagram, you've probably seen these things popping up. And they are uh, one of the best ways to market your podcast. So if you host a podcast, then definitely check out Headliner. It's easy to use, it's powerful, and you can find out more about it at headliner.app. And also a word about Plane. Plane is a game, it's a meditation game, and it encourages you to use the power of mindfulness to nurture and grow a beautiful island landscape. And in doing so, you learn basic relax relaxation techniques, uh, meditation techniques, and uh, it's one of uh, a really interesting way of getting into um, meditation and mindfulness. So if you're interested in that kind of thing and you're interested in video games as well, then check it out. It's at plane.co. That's P-L-A-Y-N-E dot co. And you can also search for meditation game and you'll find it there. Also, just a quick uh, request from me to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast and also to share the love. Tell your friends about it. Tell your mums, your dads, your grandparents, tell your kids, Tell, get them to tell their friends. Just tell the world about Conversations on Living because it's a, it's a labour of love to find that thing, that secret source to living a full and, and fulfilled life. You can also find all the other episodes at uh, conversationsonliving.com and while you're there, check out my books, my writing. I've got some meditations on there and you can also sign up to my newsletter and if you do, you get a freebie to download. And that's enough of that. Uh, it's time now to get into this conversation, a real standout conversation for me, this one. Um, so uh, do uh, have a listen and I hope you find it as inspiring as I did. This is me chatting with the amazing Nikki Eberhardt. So, Nikki, thank you so much for, 
for coming on the podcast. It's been um, a bit of backwards and forwards to kind of nail down the dates. And we've been talking since before Christmas. Uh, but I'm so glad that you've finally um, been able to fit me in because um, to, to say you're busy is probably a bit of an understatement. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of paraphrase a few things from your bio because there are just too many. We would need two podcasts just to go through even your experience because there's just so much that you're, you're doing. Um, you're a professor of business at Minerva University. You're manager on Delta Airlines Global Talent Team. You work with Global Citizen. Um, you've got a PhD in Global Sociology, an MA in International Development, an MBA from Oxford University. You're a Master of Ceremonies for NASA, or you have been a Master of Ceremonies for the NASA Space Center Cross Industry Innovation Summit. You work with the Sundance Film Festival, the Nelson Mandela Foundation. You've been a board member for UN Women. You've presented at TEDx. Uh, and there are so many more. I, I could just keep going and reel it off for another hour or two. But it's probably easier if um, I just kind of ask you to give us a little bit of background about your, your story and what has led you to do all of these amazing things and put you in a position now where you say your, your life goal is to empower people with audacious solutions to tackle the globe's most um, intractable challenges, which I think is an amazing uh, vision. But um, maybe if I could hand it over to you just to give us a bit of background about how you got to where you are right now. Thank you, Chris. It's so lovely to be here with you today. And, and thank you for inviting me onto your show. I was born, as everyone was, with a set of amazing opportunities and a set of challenges. And I had incredible parents who always taught me the value of empathy and trying to step outside of one's shoes and seeing the world from a different angle. My father grew up with a functioning alcoholic as a father, and he unfortunately uh, was adversely affected by that, both in terms of their socioeconomic status, as well as just having a bit of an absentee father. And he vowed to himself that he would be an opposite type of father. And so fortunately, I was raised by an incredible dad who was very doting and very loving. And he provided a lot of material for us as well. But he never wanted us to forget the roots from which he came, um, both the amazing aspects of his childhood, but also the, the hard parts of his childhood and what it meant to not have money. And so he and my mom would provide opportunities for us to engage with refugee populations and work with people of the homeless community. We had the opportunity to spend time in prisons with people who were in high security situations and, and have religious meetups with them. And so my entire childhood was sort of this juxtaposition between having a lot, but knowing that most others did not have a lot. And so in that position, I was given some pretty incredible opportunities. And over time, I realized that I had the opportunity to give other people voice. And how would I go about doing that? And then if you fast forward into my adult life, I, I felt like I was doing a decent job at that. And, and certainly there were pitfalls and there were 
many professional pivots and personal tragedies. I had suffered from seven separate miscarriages. And at some point, I felt like I was fairly well calibrated around what life goals were. But we were scuba diving in the Yucatan Peninsula in an underground cave system. And when I was scuba diving, I had a complete panic attack. We were in a tunnel system where we had been slowly sort of meandering to this place. And it opened up into a cavern. There was a sandy bottom, but there were absolutely no air pockets, no natural light. And a complete panic attack ensued when my mask started slowly filling up with water. And everything I knew imploded and I had no idea what to do. And then I lost control. I started ripping off my mask. I tried to rip the BC out of my mouth and my head sort of went to the top of the cave and was banging against these stalactites. And in that moment, I thought, I'm not going to make it. And what have I done with my life? What, what difference have I really made? I tried to do some pretty decent things, but, but what real difference have I made? And so fortunately, I passed out in that moment. And, and it was fortunate because I would have never allowed the dive masters to get me out of that cave system. But as my eyes rolled back into my head and I went limp, they were able to keep the BC in my mouth and they were able to get me out of that cave system rather quickly. And I came to when we surfaced and I was okay. And so now I'm left with this near death experience where the last question I had for myself is what have I done with my life? And it gave me a chance to recalibrate again around what was truly meaningful. And so that in essence has become my North star that I want to make a difference and, and what most resonates with me. There's so many things we can do in this world and so many ways we can focus our energies. And we all have different core competencies and sets of skills that enable us to make the biggest difference in, in different areas. But for me, it was tackling global challenges. It was tackling climate change. It was focusing on poverty and migration and gender equity. And so as a result, I've had some fortuitous opportunities in the private sector, in the public sector, with different nonprofit agencies. And, and some of the most important interactions have been with civil society, where I've had the opportunity to convene some important global moments around really moving the needle in tackling those global challenges. That's quite a um, uh, epic story, really. I didn't know that, uh, with all your background information, I didn't know that you'd had this kind of near-death experience almost that brought everything into such kind of sharp perspective. Um, how, do you, how do you go from having an experience like that, a kind of motivating experience that kind of creates this spark of motivation, and then turning that into opportunities to you know, change the world? How, how do you suddenly go from diving in the Yucatan Peninsula to working with the United Nations or working with the Nelson Mandela Foundation? How, how do you use that impetus to actually make real um, action happen? That's an excellent question, Chris. Um, I will 
provide the caveat that I don't do well with this every day. <laughs> so I'm not really the benchmark to be speaking on this as an expert. Um, but what I have found is that once we lock into purpose, and as I say to my students, find the thing that keeps you up at night, oftentimes because it's so disconcerting that you need to solve for it, but it also gets you out of bed in the morning because you're so passionate to solve for it. That when you find that purpose-filled mission, um, it becomes your North Star. And, and so you can keep that front of mind in your day-to-day. Now, the execution part is always the hardest. And so how do I actually uh, process this and how do I turn it into action? Well, I find first that surrounding myself with incredible like-minded people who have similar goals has been pivotal for me. I've also found that creating actionable items where I can literally check the box. And if, if it's a, a bigger, hairier goal, oftentimes you can't really break it down um, to such manageable pieces, but you can fill when you're making momentum and you can make the right connects with people in the space whom you may be able to team up with. You can lock in types of funding um, by having the right conversations. You can be in the right room at the right time. And by positioning yourself in a way that maximizes those opportunities on a daily basis, magical things happen. It doesn't always happen in the timing that I anticipate, and it certainly doesn't happen as um, efficiently as I would usually like, but at the end of the day, good things happen. And so at least once a day, I try to ensure that I am tackling one of my big hairy goals in a meaningful way that that is really driving, as as you mentioned, that action and connecting it to purpose. Is it a matter of kind of once you've identified your purpose and then you start knocking on the relevant doors connected with that purpose? And, you know, those doors might be about joining a, a, a society or joining a group or finding like-minded individuals, or it could be, you know, sending out emails, you know, sending out 50 emails a week or something like that, that eventually one of those doors is going to open. And as you step through, then more doors open and it, it almost starts like a chain reaction of, of kind of bigger and greater steps towards something something important. I think you've described it perfectly well. It's the chain reaction and it really happens. I mean, sometimes you find yourself having experienced so many of those opening doors that you almost have to revert to now, how do I vet the most important opportunities? Because I certainly can't take all of these. I am one person and I have limited bandwidth. So how can I more tightly curate now all of those opportunities that have opened to me um, through these various doors. And listen, further to your point, Chris, it's an exponential sort of phenomenon. And I think in the very nascent phases, especially when we make these professional pivots, which the average human being is going to, to make several professional pivots in his or her career, maybe six or seven over the duration of, of one's life. Um, it takes faith in the process and, and a high level of confidence in what you're doing as being the right thing for you at that right time that those doors will open. 
And, you know, I, I do a lot of work with social entrepreneurs who are trying to drive business solutions, and tackling challenges and creating successful businesses simultaneously. And they have a lot of closed doors in front of them, specifically with regards to funding their projects. And they may knock on 200 doors and 199 of those will remain closed or slam on them, <laughs> even more likely. Um, but it is that one that may open to them. And then suddenly it's 10 as a result of that one. And then, as you mentioned, the hundred, et cetera, et cetera. See, that's, I think you, you touched on something when you, you talked about um, faith and, and confidence. You know, that we, when we do come up against those doors that just aren't opening for us, we have to have that, that kind of energy, the momentum to kind of hold, you know, keep the faith and keep going and knock on another door and then knock on another door. And it's the same with anything. When we, when we're not seeing the results we wish to see, you know, it's so easy to give up. And I think most of us do give up. You know, we give up going to the gym. We give up sending our CVs, our resumes off to jobs. We give up trying that little bit harder. I mean, as a, I mean, you, you, you've talked about coming from a kind of religious background. How do you, how do you describe keeping the faith? Is it something, do you connect that with your kind of religious upbringing? And, and how would you encourage someone who doesn't have religion to, you know, find faith and find the confidence to keep going. Certainly. Well, I think it's connecting to some sort of higher power. And if it's not a religious inclination, then it can be, you know, the power of the universe. It could be the power of, of what you have inside of you and how you feel you can share that. And, you know, let's be real. I, I do a lot of work with executives in corporations where oftentimes they have to be the strong one. They always have to have the game face on. And one important leadership quality that we are trying to inculcate into them is that there is power in vulnerability. It's okay when you don't have a good day, when you feel like giving up, when you can't send out one more resume. And that's okay. Own it. And maybe even share that out with people with whom you're working, because if they see your vulnerability in that moment, it will give them license to fail fast because they know that you felt, but they, that you've won also. And then, and it'll give them license to do that, but it'll also enable them to connect with you as a leader in a deeper way. So own that, you know, when those doors slam and when you can't send out that resume, but know that there is a tomorrow and that you can wake up tomorrow and you may feel very differently and you may have some renewed hope and faith in whatever that higher power is or that power within you. Um, and that it's part of this human experience. You're going to kind of go through these undulating highs and lows. And that's just how it is. It's part of the deal. But so long as you get up on the other side and keep trying it, it will pay really handsome dividends. I suppose this is what you were talking about when you're saying align with your purpose, you know, find the thing that you're passionate about because that, that passion and that purpose gives you the extra motivation to keep knocking on that one, one extra door when all the other ones have remained shut, you know. Um, I mean, it must be very hard for you or it must have been very hard for you when you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with global organisations uh, on a daily basis and you're probably dealing with a lot of people who probably look down their nose at you because... A, you're young, B, you're a woman for a start. Um, and, you know, you're dealing with some probably very um, 
stuck in their ways kind of cultures you know business cultures things like that how do you how do you keep showing up how do you keep kind of saying no I'm going to do this how do you kind of go against the flow if you like in order to you know realize your goals yeah you know I think true path breakers are always going to have to go against the flow um and I think the trick is to become comfortable in in uh swimming upstream and being okay with that. So I personally try to break it down a couple of ways. I try to look at systems and often imperfect systems that may be unequitable and limiting, specifically, uh, for example, for women and people of color, um, and separate that from the individuals involved in the system. And I like to almost see it as a personal challenge to win over the hearts and minds of someone or a group of people who may represent the system that I take issue with. Um, but if I, if I can find some common ground with them, then it's you're likely to reach some sort of consensus or uh, get to a place where perhaps vis-a-vis -vis negotiation, you can both be unpleasantly happy, um, but you can move forward, right? And then you can say together, now that we're sort of aligned, at least on this one little point, now can we acknowledge that there's a weakness in the system? What can we do as system thinkers to, together as different stakeholders, but equally impacted and affected stakeholders? What can we do together? to move that system in a way that's going to be more representative of what we need it to be. You know, and that could be an organization, that could be a glass ceiling you find in a corporation in terms of leadership and traditionally women and people of color's limited ability to reach those upper levels of leadership. It could be in a bureaucratic system. It could be um, in a political system that politically, underrepresents or even worse, discriminates against particular groups, right? And, and so, you know, identifying the system and then finding that common ground so that you can make some sort of difference, I think is a more effective way to do it. Otherwise, I could get really frustrated yeah. and in essence, just throw my hands up to the sky and say, now what? Like, this is unbelievable that we're dealing with this level of inadequacy, but now what? And so I find the most effective way to do that is really to make those connections with the people that are running the system. Yeah, I, I suppose there's a, a kind of sense that you can, you can rage against it, but that's not going to get you anywhere. You have to kind of understand what the underlying, it's almost like saying, you know, where does it hurt? It's that question, isn't it? That when you come up against someone who's, you know, in, in your face or, you know, against everything you stand for, you can ask them, where does it hurt? Where, where are the pain points here that are causing you to kind of think like this or be like this? Uh, in, in terms of those systems, have you ever had to identify systems within yourself that have been standing in your own way, kind of belief structures or um, kind of routines or behaviours or kind of, you know, insecurities that you've had to kind of tackle to say, no, I am going to go and knock on this door over here or you know, no, I am going to tackle this because I see this as a kind of inadequacy in my own internal culture. You know, is there anything you've had to do uh, yourself? Excellent question. It's, it's a difficult 
question to answer. I can think of it on two levels. I'll talk about it from um, sort of the macro level, and then I can give you a very uh, personal example. So in terms of um, how that looks on a macro level, for me, being an activist and a campaigner, I have a tendency to see certain parts of the world and the way we operate in the world in black and white, because things often become very moralistic to me. You're either doing something to help the planet or you're not. You're exploding, exploiting another human being or you're not. And so I, as a result, sometimes I can get a bit dogmatic around um, those causes that I espouse. And so for me, you know, returning to the last point we were discussing, it's important to take a step back and use empathy and ask questions and do a lot of listening to understand what the perception is of that person. Um, because once I have an idea of at least where they're coming from, I'm less likely to really feel anger towards them. Um, and, and, and then I, I think, again, that's where the growth and the movement can really happen. And then in terms of my own weaknesses, I've got many. Um, but I would say one of those, and I mentioned this on social media recently, and I had this overwhelming response. I think it resonated with people because we often feel this way, but rarely talk about it. And that is imposter syndrome. You know, when we're at the height of our, or our professional careers, or, you know, we've kind of found a niche in what we're doing in our personal lives, um, and then we're put in, we're thrust often into situations where we're supposed to play a part. And we'll go into that board meeting and we're expected to sort of be a certain way. But inside, I'll be screaming at myself, I'm not competent to be in this meeting. <laughs> look around me at all these individuals and look at their incredible accomplishments what can I really do? I've completely hoodwinked this group of people in even receiving an invitation to participate. And, you know, the, the analytical, logical side of me says, Nikki, you are insane. <laughs> Why are you even having these thoughts? These are so false, but also unproductive. But I sometimes in those moments cannot control those thoughts. And I just have to sort of marinate in those thoughts and work through those thoughts. And every single time I've come out feeling more confident and, and better on the other side, but it's insane to me that throughout all of these professional experiences I've had in life, I still go back to this imposter syndrome mentality sometimes when I walk into those situations. Do you find it crops up more when you're feeling depleted or tired or a little bit burned out you get that kind of insecurity when you're not on top of your own kind of um, wellness if you like your own well-being absolutely 100% I think you nailed it Chris and often when you have too many irons in the fire you do feel depleted and so that's when that recharge is so 
completely necessary. Now I'm talking about this, but I don't do it well. And I actually, I, pr I provide mindful moments for my students in classes and they're so appreciative of it. But I had a student stay after a few weeks ago. She knows how many um, sort of irons I have in the fire now. And she said, professor, are you doing this for yourself? <laughs> Is there much self-care happening in your own life? And I said, you called me on it. No. <laughs> So in essence, I'm talking the talk, but not walking the walk. So Chris, yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it's just, it's just how it is, right? It happens, but it's necessary to sort of reclaim those aspects of your life so that you can recharge the battery and ultimately, you know, do what you need to do in a, in a confident way. I, I, I could not agree more. It's just hard to do. It's very hard to do. And, and it's certainly the time you, need it the most is the time when you're probably too busy to do it you know it's you know the time when you need to take five minutes is the time when you can't spare five minutes and that's what makes it so so hard almost um we talked about um sort of asking ourselves big questions and imposter syndrome and all this kind of stuff do you think that this is and it's something i mentioned beforehand um there's there's a writer uh, i can't remember who she is now but she says you know what what modest dreamers we've become and um and do you think we we end up settling for a kind of lesser life in a way because we're afraid of the imposter syndrome or we don't think we're good enough or we don't ask the, the really big questions? Yes, certainly. Why is that the case? It's easy to settle because sometimes tackling audacious goals is intimidating. Um, but I have a couple of solutions, and these are toolkits that we deploy in the business classrooms and with the executives I work with. One of those is design thinking. It's looking at problem solving from a creative lens where you may just take a subtle step back and envision a set of solutions in a way that you typically would not. And when you do that, it sort of opens up the space to generate new innovative ideas in a way that upon first glance, if you say, I'm really concerned about carbon emissions on the planet, it feels hopeless. It feels that how could my personal actions possibly make a difference? But if you look at it through a design lens, you say, actually, there's some creative solutions. I'm going to start sourcing those solutions. I'm going to try to identify, do a landscape scan, see who's in the space doing work. What are those important inventors and startup entrepreneurs doing? And how can their work potentially have massive implications for humanity? Maybe I want to be a part of that. It may be small, but it's something. And, and I really can contribute in this space. And the other toolkit I would suggest is becoming a systems thinker. So if we feel like we're running alone, I mean, again, how can my small contributions make any sort of difference in tackling the climate crisis? But conversely, if I see myself as one cog surrounded by many other cogs in a larger system that has a logic then I will be more likely to say, okay, I am just a small, tiny little player, 
but I'm an important player. And if I make the right connects in the right strategic ways, we can make magic because one plus one doesn't equal two. One plus one can equal 5,000 yeah. or more. And, and it's just tapping into that system. First of all, you have to see the system for what it is. And secondly, you have to tap into it in a way that is going to maximize the actions of a few to you know, create big impact. And I've seen it so many times with the work we do at Global Citizen in pulling together very disparate stakeholders um, from influencers to corporate leaders to startup founders to heads of state and saying to them, we have this common interest. You're this stakeholder. You're this stakeholder. Come together. Let's make magic. And, you know, I, I've seen it in the corporate space. I've seen it in personal lives, in neighborhoods, you know, clothing drives um, to, to serve homeless populations. Uh, but you've got to see yourself as a systems thinker. And you have to design around it in innovative ways that haven't been done. Find that unprecedented solution that no one's thought about before. And then I think if you, if you look at tackling big problems th through those lenses, then you suddenly feel like you actually can make a difference. And, and then it's inspiring that you just want to do more and more. It's sort of addictive. Yeah, it's really interesting you talking about this because uh, in my other life, I write about automotive development and they have a thing called systems engineering where, you know, you, these days when you're trying to make a super efficient car, you, you don't just focus on the engine, but you focus on the whole car. So, um, you know, an, an engine can only do so much, but if you, if you have super efficient tires, super efficient transmissions and everything else, you know, aerodynamics um, and everything comes together and you look at the whole picture you know, even down to the design of the one small cog that you were talking about, it all it can all sort of add an, an extra percent here or an extra percent of efficiency there. And but overall, you get a car that produces less CO two and it's much more efficient. It performs better and all this kind of stuff. But like you say, we can apply this to our own kind of life, our goals. Uh, you know, whether it's building a house or getting fitter. You know, you can look at all aspects of your own your own circumstances, your your life, uh, your routine. You know, what time you go to bed, what you eat for dinner, and suddenly everything starts to play a, a role in this picture, and you design a, a picture that moves you towards your your common goals. Um, you, you talked about. Um, audacious solutions and you, you talked about asking big questions what do you think are some of the biggest questions that we need to ask ourselves that perhaps we're a little bit afraid to confront if you like will there be future generations given the strange state of the planet what are what are we leaving the next generation will we continue to see an uptick in numbers of refugees around the world. Increasingly, as we tackle climate change and the resulting ecological refugees that we find as a result, sort of a new category almost, um, coupled with continuing political tensions, economic strains, um, more disparity between rich and poor, both within and across countries. So what's that going to look like for the refugee problem in 20 years, 50 years? Other questions I would ask around equality, 
what is it going to take? How many social movements will it require um, to enable people to be on more of an equal footing, right? To overcome so many historical inequalities, discriminations, exploitation that we've experienced on this planet and help people to be in a place where they can progress in life however they deem is important to them and they can own that, right? Those are some. I have many others, but I'd like to hear some of yours, Chris. I think it's difficult. Um, I, I try really hard not to get political, but um, I we're talking about systems and I, I don't see, I see nation states as I see but, but borders being um, artificial made up things. So I, I kind of think we're one, we're one world family of brothers and sisters. You know, we have lots of different cultures, lots of different beliefs, backgrounds, traditions, blah, blah, blah. But I don't believe that, you know, our responsibility as humans ends at our national borders. And if you're talking about systems thinking, I see the world, the human world as a, a big international system. And that the reason we have refugees coming from over here is because of the failure of leaders over here to speak to leaders over there. And, you know, there's a little elite club of very, you know, senior people who are supposed to be leading the world. And uh, I don't think they're doing their job very well, because if they did their jobs well, you wouldn't have, you know, economic migrants coming from, you know, one country looking for a better life somewhere else. You wouldn't have people fleeing um, civil war because there wouldn't be civil war because you know our leaders would be doing their jobs properly. And I see that job as just taking care of their people. And to do that means taking care of all people, taking care of the environment, taking care of the world we live in, living in a sustainable way. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be anti-capitalist necessarily. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, it doesn't have to be any ideology other than the well-being of all people and that that has to include the well-being of the planet it has to include you know the well-being of whether you're gay straight black white whether you speak chinese or speak french or speak you know whatever it is there can't be any kind of inequality because otherwise it unbalances the whole thing but i worry that we're too um too juvenile as a species to really appreciate the responsibility i think we're too, we're too caught up in kind of but i i want this i want more for me do you know what i mean i think that is our our big problem you know and it's what well you sort your stuff out over there and i'll just keep this for me and i worry that that is too much of a challenge for us to take on in this generation certainly next generation maybe even a hundred generations you know that's my big fear i i love that you capture that i i share the same sentiment and and i also I'm concerned about human tendency to be really siloed in thinking and draw sharp boundaries around ourselves or our small groups and networks and, you know, at, at the cost of the well-being of others. But, you know, I, I think it, it stems from the individual, right. And, and changing, shifting a mindset and a way of being in one's heart. So, you know, the, 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 the notion of agape love, which is a deep abiding love, and it doesn't discriminate that type of love. If we each had just a bit more of that, and we interfaced with the janitor in the, re in the public restroom 
<laughs> that we were just in the same way we interface with the CEO of the business we work for or you know one of our one of our idols or our influencers in life and i think i th- i think it starts there um, because then we we have less of a tendency to do all of the things you mentioned as as politicians and as leaders of the world to just draw those sharp lines around our tribes i mean it, it is very hard i mean people are under a lot of pressure just to get by just to put food on the table asking people to kind of just go one step further and be selfless and stop looking for someone to blame for their their hardship is it is quite a tough ask for a lot of people who are you know struggling to make ends meet how can we you know how can we encourage ourselves the people around us to just be a little bit more uh, you know open to each other and to be more gentle in the way they go about their lives i don't know the answer to that i mean i think there's several ways we could suggest one of them is just to de- develop empathy. And, and even if it comes from a self-centered place, you know, for example, when we're training leaders, how can you be the best leader to achieve the goals you want? Well, let's talk about servant leadership. What does that mean? Maybe your goal is just to excel in the business, but in order to do that, you have to develop some empathy for the people whom you lead and so how do you do that, right? I think at the end of the day, most people are fairly well-intentioned. They want to do good to the world. They want to do well in the world. Um, but oftentimes they don't know how. Or as you mentioned, Chris, the circumstances that surround them sort of re- require them to dial in and just you know circle the wagons. And I, th- I feel we've all experienced a bit of this in the height of the, the, the uh, COVID pandemic. And, you know, but, but when we try to look outside of ourselves and we say, oh, okay. So I did have a bit more empathy and it actually felt good because now I'm, I'm relating to that person on my team who I thought we had absolutely nothing in common. And now I realize we actually have something in common. And we've developed some sort of relationship as a result. Or, you know, if, if one goes outside of his or her community and says, wow, I live in this amazing suburban area, but 10 minutes from me, there's an entire community of people suffering from homelessness. And they're humans just like me. And what can I do to connect with them? And, you know, again, it's going to be uncomfortable when we do all of these things for the first time or do it again. But over time, I think it becomes, as I mentioned earlier, addictive because it feels really good and we like to feel good. And so, you know, if if we provide, we we tee up more opportunities for ourselves to have those feel-good experiences, I think we'll just want more and more of them. And, you know, this ties in very well with, what you were saying about systems thinking as well you know empathy as a part of the system as a part of our kind of human system of going about our day-to-day lives you know we talked about wellness um and how about the things that make us feel good allow us to show up better for ourselves and for other people and if if empathy can make us feel good then it gives us more impetus to kind of keep showing up and keep making good decisions i think it's it's a wonderful circular conversation um, we've had in a way um, and i'm really grateful for this 
if people are inspired by some of the things you've said today and they want to do more, they want to find out more about some of the stuff that you're doing, where is a good place for them to, to go or to, to kind of look for inspiration or places where they can help? Oh, well, I have a website that I'll share with you and they're welcome to, to find me there if they want further conversations. I think in addition to that, become a global citizen, um, learn about the issues, start taking digital actions, um, come to some of our momentous global events, um, seek out opportunities in your local communities to, to serve. First, you know, again, find what resonates with you. What is the thing that keeps you up at night but gets you out of bed in the morning? And then find the people who are already working in that space and the organizations that are working in that space and try to just align yourself with that, with them. So I know, I know that's a bit nebulous, but I think everyone has a different set of driving factors. It's just your job to find out what those factors are and then, you know, find, find the right connections that are going to help you make that change that you want in your life. And ultimately, Chris, it's like we're talking about just having empathy. If we have more empathy for other people, we'll certainly have a bit more empathy for ourselves too. And that also feels really good because life can be really hard. We need to be nice to ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, someone said uh, you should try to love yourself like you love the people you love you know, and treat yourself just like you, the people you love, you know, and that can be quite hard, but also it gives us opportunity to, you know, give ourselves a, a kick up the backside when we need it. Also the opportunity to rest when we need it, you know, and we, we can be a little bit more forgiving of ourselves uh, when we're tired or, you know, a little bit more forceful with ourselves when we need to kind of step up and take action. So, um, but no, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Um, and I know you've got more meetings today, so I'm going to um, end it there. But thank you ever so much. I think there's um, so much to be inspired by and reassured by uh, from this conversation. So I'm very grateful for that. Thank you, Chris. It was really lovely speaking with you. And you've also inspired me and the rest of the audience. So thank you for that. So that was Nikki Eberhardt. It was such an inspiring conversation. I just want to get out there now and start knocking on doors and building something with huge impact. If you want to start making an impact now, just think about those things that keep you awake at night and think about what makes you unique and maybe apply some systems thinking to see where you could contribute to something bigger or or bring about some change you would like to see in the world. I feel really inspired after that conversation. I hope you do too. And if you want to continue the conversation, then head over to our Facebook group. Just search for Conversations on Living. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find more episodes at conversationsonliving.com. While you're there, sign up for my monthly newsletter, uh, which has some interesting thinking points and some other interesting tidbits in there as well. Next week, I will be speaking with Diane Dreyer about her book, The Tower of Peace, and about how we can walk a life in alignment with who we are. But in the meantime, have a lovely day.